Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org. And now a message from The Rock of Gainesville. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see all of you wonderful, beautiful people. Thanks for being here. My name is Hector. I'm one of the pastors here at The Rock of Gainesville, and it's a joy to be here with you. I want to give a big thank you to Pastor George and Pastor Suzanne for affording me this opportunity to open up God's word and share it with you. Because hear me when I say it, it is absolutely one of my favorite things to do. I consider it a high privilege. So I'm honored that you have made it a priority today uh, to be here with us. So I'm excited about our time together today. I've been praying for us and I'm stirred in my spirit that God is going to speak to us through his word to encourage us and challenge us for his glory. Amen? Amen. So go ahead and take your Bibles with you and turn to the book of Acts, specifically chapters 6 and 7. If you have the Bible app on your smartphone, you can find today's sermon notes in the events section of the Bible app. Now the book of Acts, it gives us an account of the early days of the early church. It's a powerful and insightful book that is still relevant and helpful to us today. And specifically, chapters 6 and 7, they zero in on one particular individual who was not one of the apostles. He was just a selected leader amongst a bunch of new believers. And it turns out that the longest discourse that is, spoken communication recorded in the book of Acts is from this guy. So, you know, I think there might be something there for us, if you ask me personally. 52 verses straight, a discourse from this individual. So in my opinion, it doesn't matter that he wasn't one of the apostles. It still remains that this is a sizable chunk And surely there's going to be something for us to glean today. And if that resonates with you, then maybe you would say like I've been saying as I've been preparing for today, that yes, even Stephen has something for me today. Even Stephen has something for me today. Let me pray. Lord, we declare that your word is holy. We position our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength before it now, asking that your Holy Spirit would come, illuminate your word, make it life to us, help us to walk out of here better than we walked in, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, quick question. How many of you have noticed the goodness and the faithfulness of God to our church community? Come on. We're a few weeks away from celebrating our 34th anniversary since the day that Pastors George and Suzanne birthed the Rock of Gainesville. That's 34 years. That's a long time. Come on, let's give it up for God. And the best part is that God has been and is still transforming lives here. God is using our community of faith to change lives and draw more and more attention to himself. And to that, I say, glory be to God. Amen. 
Amen? Now, it's against that backdrop that I want to examine and take a look at Stephen here in Acts chapter 6 and 7 today. Chapter 6 highlights an incredible time in the early church. Lots of growth, lots of multiplication, lots of discipleship going on. It was a very exciting time. But then near the end of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, we see this one idea, and that is that growth is not without its troubles. Growth is not without its troubles. There were internal problems and there were external problems. But here's the good news as we juxtapose our community to the early church. We can know this, that the opposite is also true. Where there is no growth, the kingdom of darkness likes to leave it just as it is. But kingdom growth, that's going to draw attention. And Stephen here in these chapters modeled that Jesus is worth every ounce of devotion through it all, through the highs and the lows, to the good times, and also through the difficult times. So here's our goal. Let's determine in our hearts to not rest on our laurels during this beautiful time of kingdom growth. Instead, let's stay vigilant. Let's stay committed and let's press into the things of God because he is absolutely worth it. So we're going to break up Stephen's address into powerful nuggets that I believe will help us to arrive at the big picture here in this text. Actually, cha- actually Acts chapter 7 is the premier biblical text that, from which we draw the craft of apologetics. The Greek word is apologia, and it means to give a defense of one's position. And in this case, it was Stephen's faith in Jesus. Stephen actually does exactly what Peter charges us all to do in 1 Peter chapter 3, 15. Let me read that to you. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, we always need to be able to give an answer to people who ask us for a reason as to why we believe what we believe. That's important. Our faith descends from an oral tradition that has been sovereignly preserved, sovereignly written down, and now is sovereignly digitized to fit in the palm of our hands. But for what reason? To glorify God as his word gets into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds, and from there, display its power and effectiveness. Listen, the effective Christian is the one who is able to articulate the hope that is within them. Highly important. So now Stephen, he has an impressive resume from the get-go. When they were trying to sort out an issue with the Hellenistic widows, that is, Greek-speaking widows, uh, who were not getting their daily portion of the daily distribution, the apostles decided to call Uh, all the early church together, and call for seven reputable men to address the issue. 
So let's read it here in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. It says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So they chose Stephen plus six other guys. Now ultimately, as Stephen is busy going about and doing good and serving widows in this season of multiplication, he gets lied about. The lie is so strong and it spreads so quickly that he gets arrested and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, which is a council of Pharisees and elders. So think of uh, like a Senate committee. So this is serious. He just got dragged in to go before the Sanhedrin. So we're going to ask this simple question. What can we learn from Stephen? And as I have prayed and prepared for today, it's no coincidence to me that the Holy Spirit has placed this particular word on my heart to share with you right before the beginning of a new school year. Alachua County Public Schools begins their first day of class this Tuesday, the 10th. Our very own Rock School begins this Wednesday, the 11th. Many homeschool families are underway or are also about to begin their next year of schooling too. Santa Fe College and the University of Florida are set to begin near the end of this month on Monday, August the 23rd. It's such an exciting time of the year for our community. And when, with conjunction to this text, at the end of our time together, we're going to spend some time in prayer, praying for all of you educators and disciple makers and students as you get underway with the new school year. And I believe that time together is going to be powerful. But back to Stephen. Here's what we know so far. He was full of faith. He was full of the Spirit. He's going about doing good, and he gets lied about and ultimately arrested. So here's our first takeaway from all of that. Manifestations of your Spirit-filled faith will serve some and scare others. Manifestations of your Spirit-filled faith will serve some and scare others. You got to know that right out of the gate. You see, as you enter this new school year, when you exercise your faith and you walk in the spirit, some are going to be blessed by your efforts. Your students, your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, your employees, your professors will be blessed as they witness and watch your faith in Jesus unfold right before their very eyes. You see, it really is God's grace and mercy and goodness realized in your faith, flowing through you to them, leaving them with this feeling of being served well. Whether that produces immediate fruit or fruit that will come at a later time, your faith expressed will serve them well. So yes, get after it. Be emboldened and be encouraged by that reality. Excuse me, demonstrate your faith. Walk in the spirit because you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And some will praise our heavenly father because of it. Yet at the same time, it is also true that those same demonstrations of your faith will scare others. It's going to challenge them. 
It's going to unnerve them. It's going to trouble them. It might even upset them. And yet, as difficult and as unpleasant as that may sound, that is necessary too. You see, that moment of confrontation reminds me of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 8, where it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, in this context, maybe the rejection of your expression of faith, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, in this context, maybe receiving and being served by your expression of faith, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Some will choose to be served by your faith, while others will choose not to be. Either way, let your life preach. Let your life preach. So here's a list that we're going to create as we fly through these chapters. We're going to title it, Even Stephen Showed Me. I kind of like that. It had a little funk to it. Even Stephen showed me, hey. My wife, she didn't look. My wife didn't, she didn't look at me, so that was, that was the signal for tone it down. <laughs> Loud and clear. Loud and clear. All right, so first up, even Stephen showed me the importance of peaceful composure. The importance of peaceful composure. Here we go. Stephen is now before the Sanhedrin. Liars have been stirred up by religious zealots to stand against Stephen with false accusations. They blast him with four specific and major, okay, major accusations. And amazingly, amazingly, this is the posture and the composure of the one who has been assaulted, falsely arrested, dragged against his will to this council, and has just listened to all these lies spoken about him. Read it with me here in verse 15, chapter 6, verse 15. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. His face became as bright as an angel's. There he stood. After all that he's gone through, he stands there shining like an angel at peace. Confident, trusting, humble. You see, there are only three people in the Bible whose faces shone like the sun. Moses, Jesus, and Stephen. This is remarkable. And in this tense moment of great adversity, Stephen shows us the, impo- the importance of a peaceful composure. So let me ask, what is your countenance in the midst of adversity? Do your nostrils flare? Do you scowl? Do you put out this blank stare, which is a counterfeit of peace while your blood is boiling inside? Hear me, church. I cannot say that I would have 
reacted the same way if I was in his shoes, right? See, I think you never really know until you're there. Pastor George always says that we don't really know what's in us until we're squeezed. But hear me, the world needs us to shine forth the glory of God, especially in the toughest of moments. So if you're one to quickly fly off the handle, stop believing the lie that you're predisposed to it because of your background, your nationality, your upbringing, or your pride. Remind yourself of this one eternal truth. Your identity is in Christ. You see, that should take precedence over all things in our lives. Because like Stephen, has God not graced you to walk full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit? He has. Well, that's exactly how Stephen was able to stand there the way he did, with such composure and with such poise shining for all of them to see. So as we launch into this fall semester, you will be tested. You will be challenged, guaranteed. Your kids will ask some tough questions. They might have some gaps in their understanding that they'll need you to kind of help clarify. Gaps that you might not be too certain of yourself. You might have a situation where you're exposed to an opposing thought that assaults our faith. What are you going to do then? Are you going to use your position of authority to shut it down and demand compliance? That sounds unwise and dangerous. Or how about if a family member or a friend on Facebook or Instagram or any other social media platform says something that absolutely grates you? How about if a professor says something outlandish in the lecture hall? Or what if one of your children shows disinterest in what you're trying to teach them? What about this? What if someone lies about you? What are you going to do then? You see, you have to determine it now. Are you going to lash out as your blood boils? Or are you going to choose to shine in that difficult moment the peaceful composure that Stephen demonstrates for us here in the Holy Scriptures? You see, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that understanding is completely vital when you juxtapose it with Romans chapter 8, verse 19, where it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Because this world wants shalom peace. That's a different kind of peace than just the absence of conflict. We're talking shalom peace, which is this holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, transformative, 
saturating every area of your life, spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially, relationally, that kind of peace, God is releasing into the earth in order to redeem it and restore it. And listen, it is a high call and a high privilege that you and I get to be conduits of that peace because of Christ in us. Own it. So this world, your spouse, your children, your coworkers, your employees, your students, your professors are longingly waiting for you to shine the light of Christ. So show it to them. Own the peaceful composure that Christ has given you because we are called to be and to respond differently. Okay, next point. Even Stephen showed me the importance of proficient counterarguments. Yes. This one sounds intimidating. You might be sensing, oh boy, that one sounds like work. <laughs> and you wouldn't be entirely wrong. So let's see how it played out for Stephen. All right, these false witnesses laid out four accusations. Remember, four accusations against Stephen before the Sanhedrin. The four accusations were as follows. Acts chapter 6, verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they are the first two of the four accusations. Four accusations against Stephen, blaspheme Moses, blaspheme God. Okay? Then in verse 13, we hear about the other two. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. So our four accusations against Stephen are, he blasphemed Moses, he blasphemed God, he's against the temple, and he's against the law. And then the Sanhedrin finally asked Stephen in verse 1 of chapter 7, they asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And what Stephen, who is full of faith and full of the Spirit, does for the next 52 verses is nothing short of spectacular. Okay? Now, we won't get into it verse by verse, but hear me out. It is absolutely worth your time to read it. It's so, so good. So we're going to draw out a few key verses to understand Stephen's response. So the first thing to note is that Stephen had a rebuttal for every accusation laid against him. In other words, he had a proficient counterargument to their arguments. And what he did was that he took the subject matter of every accusation, which, hear me, was a point of interest to them, Keep that in mind. Moses, God, the temple, and the law, right? And from a deep place of personal and genuine conviction, he showed them that he valued those interests too. See, that might teach us to try and relate with those who oppose us, even if it means grasping at the lowest common denominator, denominator that they too are image bearers of God. So Stephen, he makes it clear that he never spoke against these four things. And he starts with God, so we're going to start with God. Acts chapter 7, verse 2, follow it with me. 
Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So already, brothers and fathers, he's connecting with them. He honors them. But more so, he acknowledges God. And he honors God as glorious. He actually does that in a very peculiar way. And that is he uses the title, the God of glory. The God of glory. Do you know how many times that specific title is in the Bible? Once. Once outside of this moment. So you know immediately that they knew that term or that they knew that title. It's found in Psalm 29 verse 3. And it says, the voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. Very unique, right? Powerful, memorable. Because how many of you have ever stood outside as a thunderstorm was rolling in? It actually happened to me just this past week. I was rolling out my trash can and uh, a storm was about to roll in. And you can feel the coolness in the air. You can feel the pressure drop. And I looked up and you could see these low, darkened clouds moving swiftly across the sky. And man, when that thunder hits, boom, you're, you're running for cover. Why? Because thunder will remind us of how small and finite we are. And our God, the God of glory, he thunders. The God of glory thunders. So you better believe that that title stood out to them. So it becomes clear that Stephen is not blaspheming God, as they, say, as they said he did. He actually recalls and recites accurate things about God many more times throughout his address. So that accusation, out the window. Next accusation, Moses. In Acts chapter 7, verse 20, he says, At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Here we go again. He acknowledges Moses. He honors Moses. He honors the role that Moses played in the unfolding of God's plan in Israel's history. And they're just probably sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, actually, that's what we were taught, and that's what we believe. Uh, we don't know what's going on here. So that accusation, boop, out the window. What about the next one? The law. Yep, he addresses that one too. Did I skip one? I think I did. No, I didn't skip one. No, the law. So he addresses that one too. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. He says, Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God, uh, where he received life-giving words. Sorry, I lost it here, but let me read it over here. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angels spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. Now, what were those words? The law, the Ten Commandments. So as you can see, he's not speaking against the law. Instead, he's actually acknowledging it and honoring it and accurately inserting it into this intentionally selected recitation of Old Testament history. I'll give you a little sneak peek. 
He's actually doing that on purpose because he's building a case against them. Shh. I'm serious. We are, we are witnessing brilliance here, people. All right, last one, the temple. Yep. In Acts chapter 7, verse 44 through 47, Stephen says, Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan of God, excuse me, to the plan of God, plan God sh had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. And it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. This is all that Stephen just said. And it's accurate, accurate, accurate. A clear counter-argument against their accusation of him. Now let's hold on to a few things that we can draw from all of these rebuttals uh, before we go on to the next point. First thing, to develop proficient counter-arguments. You have to know what your accusers or what those who are in opposition of you are saying. That's important. If you don't know what they're saying, you can't accurately and properly address them. You can't accurately provide a rebuttal. See, therefore, that might mean that you might need to listen more and talk less. Mm. So let me ask you, since we're starting to fidget, <laughs> do you need to listen more to better understand someone in your life? No. To better understand what someone is saying in your life? Your spouse? <laughs> All the married couples just froze. <laughs> if I sit here perfectly still, they won't know that I'm thinking of them. <laughs> Get them, Holy Spirit. Get them. <laughs> or how about, how about your coworker, your employees, your child, your student? Here's another question. Do you need to educate yourself? Do you need to educate yourself more on their position in order to better evaluate it through the word of God? You see, that's being proficient. See, this strategy helps to disarm the volatility of a difficult discussion and opens up the opportunity to insert truth. Teachers, parents, right? Don't they say that the best, uh, the best offense is a great defense, right? So be ready and be willing. There's tons that we're contending with now in culture, so we can't afford the luxury to bury our heads in the sand. Instead, it's time to come up and get our head in the game. We got to see what we're up against. We got to not be intimidated by it. We got to press on with confidence knowing that God is the one who battles with us. Secondly, in Stephen's address, Stephen quoted the Bible or the Old Testament, I should say, like a straight-up champ. I mean, there's quotes all over that thing. He did it brilliantly. I'm talking direct quotes from the Bible, fully memorized, fully recalled, fully recited, in the heat of the moment. Wow. 
We should all long for that. That shows us that there's value in memorizing the Holy Scriptures. This, church, this is a treasure unlike anything else on the planet. So does your current approach to it, does that say that about your life? This is a treasure. And so my encouragement to you is get it in your heart. Actually, let's say Stephen. Let's blame Stephen. Stephen's encouragement to us is to get it in our heart, get it in our mind, get it in our soul, get it in our spirit. Because it is truly invaluable. And lastly, we see here that we have to have comprehension. Comprehension is more than memorization. They are two completely different things. Now, the Bible doesn't say, but I imagine that Stephen studied the Torah, that his parents were very likely teaching him the word and they brought him to synagogue often. And that's a big plus, big thumbs up for us, huh, parents? Right, that our efforts with our kids at home and that our efforts with our kids here, that they, by, God, by God's grace, those efforts can produce fruit. That's encouraging. So all of these efforts that we include and exercise in our lives, that can take an individual beyond simple memorization to an understanding of the bigger, broader picture. And Stephen clearly comprehended the scope of God's work in the history of God's people. In other words, Stephen knew the meta-narrative of the Bible, and you should know it too. See, that's comprehension that we as believers should have in our back pocket always. And if you're unfamiliar with the term meta-narrative, meta-narrative is the story about the stories of historical meaning, experience, or knowledge that when totaled together lead to the completion of the master idea. And for the Christian faith, that's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the meta narrative of the Bible is built upon these three concepts creation, fall, and redemption. That's the story laid out for all humanity to see. And in Jesus, it is revealed that He is the Son of God, the second member of the triune Godhead who was there and participated in creation, who then later entered human history Himself in bodily form and connected and experienced the fullness of the fall when he personally carried our sins to the cross and suffered the punishment for our sins. But through his death and resurrection, he atoned for our sins and made a way where there wasn't a way for you and I to be redeemed. Creation, fall, redemption, all revealed in Jesus. That's why he's preeminent. That's the bigger story of the Bible, and every story in the Bible points to him. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones says it in her children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, every story whispers his name. I love that. That's so powerful and so good. And Stephen comprehended that meta-narrative. And last one. Even Stephen showed me the importance of passion for Christ. The importance of passion for Christ. 
Now, two possible perceptions can, uh, we can have two possible perceptions when looking at Stephen, and they are, you might see, when you look at Stephen, you might see effort, or you might see giftedness. If you see effort, you see Stephen's discipline, right? You see his dedication. You see his commitment to the Old Testament and to the early church. And you see his checklist of memorized Bible verses. Yeah? If that resonates with you, you're likely fired up right now. Woo! You're like, yeah! Team Stephen! My alarm is already set for 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. Memory verses, let's go! Effort. On the other hand, if you see giftedness, you might see Stephen as a, as a rarity. You see something that is special or something that is reserved for someone other than you. Bible memorization, comprehension, communication like Stephen, all of that might sound like a big chore to you because it's not you. So if either of those two perceptions are true, we have to ask, wait, discipline, effort-based, rule-following, is that what should drive me? Or on the other hand, wait, only if I'm special or gifted in certain things, that's what's supposed to drive me? And if I'm not, I get a pass? None of that makes sense. Both seem highly exclusive and empty to me. So can I submit to you that Stephen was driven not by effort nor giftedness, but rather by a passion for Christ, period. You see, his composure in front of his accusers, his masterful counter arguments, all of this was upheld and made possible because of God's given passion uh, for him to pursue Christ. Remember, he was full of faith and he was full of the Spirit. His passion for Christ therefore brought about the memorization. His passion for Christ brought about the connections to the biblical narrative. And it was his passion for Christ that enabled him to endure this grave injustice. And look here, look at this. His passion for Christ granted him an absolute beautiful moment. At the end of his speech, okay, he turns their accusations on them to expose their guilt for their rejection of Jesus. He said all that he said to clear his name, but at the same time, he also said all that he said to lump them in with their forefathers who also rejected God. And as you can imagine, that did not land too well. But his passion for Christ, his passion for Christ led to this beautiful moment. Listen to this in Acts 7 verse, verses 54 through 58. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Sounds demonic. But he, but he full of the spirit 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with loud voices and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. In that hysteria, did you see the beauty? Stephen's grace-fueled passion for Christ enabled him to see the glory of God. And did you catch it? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's the only instance in the Bible that describes Jesus that way. He is either at the right hand of God or he is seated at the right hand of God. But here with Stephen, as he's about to be murdered, Jesus stands for him. That's how I know Stephen was driven by passion. He loved Jesus because Jesus first loved him. That's passion. So forget effort. Forget thinking it's giftedness in someone else and not you. It's love. It's passion. The last time I checked, Jesus died for you. He suffered for you. His passion for you is undeniable. So let his passion for you fuel your passion for him. Then your pursuit of his face won't be boring. It won't be a chore. It won't be a checklist. And it won't be for someone else. But when we understand the importance of having a passion for Christ, you'll see it for what it truly is. The privilege of your life. Let passion for Christ drive you this year. It's about passion, passion for his presence like we sang this morning. In every moment, in every conversation, in every confrontation. Passion for his presence until our dying breath because a life passionately devoted to him is a life worth living. But What if you asked me and said to me, but Hector, time out. Let's be honest here. Stephen's the loser. Stephen loses here. He gets killed. He dies. I don't want to be a loser. Then I would say, it's time to redefine your definition of losing. Because we read this in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. It says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Not only did Stephen's passion for Jesus get exemplified in him seeing Jesus stand for him, That's not losing, by the way. 
And not only did Stephen's passion for Jesus grant him the grace to simply fall asleep as they stoned him. That's not losing, by the way. But Stephen's passion for Jesus was sovereignly orchestrated to land at the feet of a young man named Saul. The man who would be called by God on the road to Damascus and become the venerable Paul, the apostle, servant of God and transcriber of most of the New Testament. That's not losing to me. That's not even close. God is awesome. God is awesome. So hear me, church. We have a great responsibility, but an even greater opportunity to show the world that we are carriers of that which was passed down through Moses, that indeed we are children of God, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who have his law written on our hearts. That's who we are. Now let us shine it to the world, amen? Amen. 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 All right, one last thing. Before all of this started, for Stephen, I didn't read this earlier, but in Acts chapter six, verse six, the church leaders called for him and the other reputable men, remember that? They called for him and the other reputable men and they prayed over them. I believe this played a significant role in all that Stephen was about to accomplish to the glory of God. Because I believe there is power in the prayer of impartation. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about our church, visit therockonline.org.